This is Craig Hostetler, and I'd like to welcome you to the Black Sheep Experience. Thank you for hanging out with me on the podcast today. This is episode number 41, and uh, I am excited about this particular episode. You know, I had the opportunity to have a conversation with a gentleman by the name of Mark Thomas Shaw. Now, Mark and, uh, and his good friend... Clint Sabom started this um, website podcast uh, called Contemplative Light. And essentially the base of this or the platform, the springboard of this is Christian mysticism. And um, the history, the insight, the introspective um, that the website, the podcast, as well as Mark, um, brings to, I guess, seekers like you and I, I think is really just priceless. You know, it's interesting because the past, I don't know, couple of years, God has really been, the divine has been expanding me and, um, exposing me, even leading me into perhaps practices that um, at one point in time were not a part of the traditional um, tradition (laughs) that I call home, right? Christianity. And so Mark has a way of exposing some of the ways that those practices, those ideas um, were whitewashed from the scene, right, of the Christian tradition and how they very much belong in um, that practice today. And so I'm really glad that um, he was able to join me on the podcast. You know, one of the exciting things for me um, having this podcast has been the ability to have individuals who have expanded our intellect, our perspective, our spirituality. And I think that Mark is one of these individuals. Now, before we jump into the actual conversation, um, the, the best way really to, I guess, make a connection with Mark is either through the Contemplative Light podcast or even Mark's own um, website, which is markthomasshaw.com, right? And Mark is spelled M-A-R-C, so that's markthomasshaw.com, or on the Contemplative Light podcast, which is contemplativelight.com. And then they have their own um, podcast as well, which is, um, all the information is there on the contemplativelight.com website. And so, yeah, I would really encourage you to dive in a little bit and see kind of what they're about. And you'll, you'll hear his heart today. You'll, you'll, the intellect and the, and the history and the contemplation that he brings, I think, to the conversation is really invaluable. A couple of, uh, quick items before we 
begin this conversation. I mention this quite often, and it continues to be true. Your interaction with this podcast is really invaluable. And what I mean by that is jumping on all those social media platforms that you're a part of, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, any of those kinds of things. If you will follow the Black Sheep experience on those platforms, if you'll continue to share uh, the podcast with you know, your social interactions, the people that you're connected to. It really is an invaluable resource uh, for this podcast. I don't spend money, um, nor is it in the budget, <laughs> to spend money on advertising and things like that. Plus, I never, uh, I'm never enthused about those um, sponsored ads. So the best way really for this podcast to expand its audience. The only way is for you to be a part of that by sharing it with the people that you're socially connected to. Uh, I'd really, really appreciate your assistance in that. Once again, man, thank you for hanging out with me on episode 41 today. And let's dive into this conversation with contemplativelight.com with their very own Mark Thomas Shaw. Yeah, so um, it is a subject, and basically what we're talking about is Christian mysticism. Now, I, I know that you have, um, perhaps a, we call it a ministry, I guess, um, Contemplative Light, and then you have your own website, uh, markthomasshaw.com. You also have a book called Dante's Road, The Journey Home for the Modern Soul. So uh, you got a, a, a really, a, which I love, the. Uh, I, I assume that's based on like the Dante's Inferno uh, journey. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, so I just learned about that probably a few months ago, which is completely fascinating. So hopefully we can jump into a little bit of that. But basically what you are, and I'll, I'll call you an expert, but basically what you're an expert at is is Christian mysticism. Have I have I kind of got that right? Yes, I think. I mean, the, the terminology can get tricky. We, I, I think to be um, more inclusive... The term we—that's why we called it contemplative light—is to um, focus on the the practice uh, of the the contemplative traditions and allow the experience to be uh, whatever it is, it, rather than trying to shoehorn it. It just so happens, you know, Clint and I, my partner Clint Sabom at Contemplative Light and I, both come out of. The Christian tradition. He spent time in a monastery. Um, I, you know, grew up in an evangelical home in the missions field, and, and went to a Christian college and went to seminary. Um, and so my whole trajectory has just been rooted in the Christian tradition. But you know, as you grow, we, we just wanted to be inclusive of other traditions as well. So our sort of, in a sense, the Christian mystics are a kind of starting point. Okay. Wow. So this is going to be more interesting than I thought. Let me, I let me give you. I'll give you a, a super quick synopsis of my story as well. So, 
Um, I was a, my wife and I were in Christian ministry for 20 plus years, uh, evangelical, right? And um, there were so many things that just did not resonate with me that probably the starting point for that was hell. And then it moved on to, I don't know, so much of the red tape and governmental things, which I know that's not the religion itself's fault, but they still do kind of go hand in hand. And um, then I began to do some deep study because some there were people from the Christian past, people like John Calvin, for instance, and, and not him alone, others, that their ideas about God, they didn't resonate with me at all. And so the more that I began, to, and even Augustine, by the way, because he's my new frustration. Uh, <laughs> so the more I begin to kind of dive into this and look at, at some some of the Gnostics, some of the uh, more esoteric groups, the more I begin to discover practices that were demonized, like... Uh, some forms of divination, um, even some of the pagan things that maybe came even from Christianity. And, and, and so, but, and we talked about this just a few moments ago, finding that information um, is very difficult and finding it in any kind of a fashion that is understandable or systematic is impossible. So, so, if if you look at that at all, it, it seems to me before this whole thing was institutionalized, Christianity as a doctrine that that wasn't really a reality. And, and so I know I, I know I dumped a bunch on you there, but can you sort of muddle your way through some of those things I just mentioned? Yeah, I think um, uh, I want to go back to kind of how religion comes about which is there is some spark some some revel, re- connection to the divine and experience that gets articulated and then that becomes systematized with the available cultural symbols you know and and framework and assumptions about reality that are sort of um, you know ensconced and, and and enveloped in that time period and then those it becomes difficult to, to separate the essential from the non-essential uh, and to kind of get back to the essential <laughs> kernel of truth. That is, all, and, and when I use the term truth, I want to uh, clarify, I'm always referring to a, a, an in-the-moment experience uh, rather than an articulated um, abstraction that uh, can be misused always. Mm. And and superimposed mm. uh, upon experience to you know establishing hierarchies and power dynamics um, that then always are prone to um, the 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 egoic takeover and and then become ripe for different kinds of misuse and corruption of you know in subtle and not so subtle ways so. Um, there is this strand within Christianity that is, uh, and we, we deal with it a, a lot with the pushback against it. So uh, one is simply resting in God, 
And in doing so, partaking of the divine nature at the level of our inmost being. And um, a lot of my initial uh, exposure to this way of thinking was through contemplative outreach started by Father Thomas Keating in mid mid 20th century as a kind of response to the the look eastward for um, different practices whether in Buddhism or Hinduism and the counterculture in the 60s for the mystical touch in a sense and so what what he reintroduced was this monastic practice going back to the cloud of unknowing and maybe even further back to um, pseudo Dionysius mm. in a fifth century um, monk and so the, these practices of a, a prayer of the heart it's called a prayer of silence of intentionally consenting to the divine presence and paying attention to all of the cluttered thoughts that that uh, in, inevitably cloud out our our mind and that are by and large simply a matter of our conditioning and to evacuate so much of a middle layer of the unconscious processes that sort of mental and emotional infrastructure that prevent that what you know what's called the divine union what the mystics refer to as that <clears throat> Now, all of that is all well and good, but there is a component that the, of, of this process that you know, one is called the, the night of sense, the dark night of the soul, where wounds and the accumulated um, response to the wounds, the, 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 the dirty bathwater, the trash in a way that accumulates in our subconscious is evacuated. And that process can be harrowing, it can be anxiety-ridden, it can be painful. So the image of sort of, um, you know, the calm monks sitting in, in lotus position just, uh, you know, in, in escapist bliss is always a disappointment for some when they hit that stage of the contemplative process and have to relinquish. And there's a... a uh, a, a really a, a, an emotional psychological kind of death process a death and rebirth that 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 we have rituals for at the exoteric level in Christianity called baptism uh-huh. or partaking of communion <clears throat> there are these these symbols of death and resurrection and we commit to that process in a sense when we convert to Christianity but the nuts and bolts and the nitty gritty uh, it takes time relinquishment consent and so um it, that's kind of the experiential experiential layer of the contemplative path of and and what what comes out the other side is just this radical opening up of release contentment joy that, and then you go oh these fruits of the spirit that i memorized scriptures about or told people they'll have if they join my church um, that is maybe a mild foretaste of this real experience um, and so there, there is always been a, a sort of tricky relationship between 
the pastor and the prophet, so to speak. Mm. The you know the the mystic and the church, um, and even the term itself, it suggests an individualism, a a defiance, a lack of institutional checks and balances to rein in um, this this wildness, the sort of wildness of God that we we can associate with the the prophet, uh, you know, a voice of one and crying in the wilderness. Um, the, the, the sort of John the Baptist figure who has kind of turned their backs on convention and the, the social norms. And I, I resonated a ton with some of what you spoke, which is the language and framework of a lot of, um, you know, conventional Christianity, sometimes just churchianity, uh, will sweep a lot under the rug and turn a blind eye or pretend it isn't there um, and in large part the kind of shadow figure that we uh, all possess and is part of the process of coming to terms with owning and transcending but because the language is such that we are now new creatures that we can disavow that uh, not wrestle with it not allow space for those those wounds to be healed and it was really a uh, a professor of mine in, in a Christian college who was an Anglican and who had you know as in his teens probably just read up on Buddhism and then later had a conversion experience into the, the Episcopalian church finally in America and um, he spoke with such conviction but and a, a kind of authority but also a humility and a gentleness and it was such a combination of a gentle wisdom and an inclusiveness and openness that was such in such contrast and juxtaposition to a, a more kind of legalistic rule-based purity-based, authority-based structure that I had been raised in, and and yet he also knew his scripture backwards and forwards, and so he was a very committed Christian, but he, he, he was uh, of a different sort, and coming from a different place than so much of what I had been raised with, um, that was about conforming and getting in alignment and instead he was he was so much more interested in rather than sin guilt confession you know forgiveness by god and community that kind of hamster wheel um that that was i found at some point just kind of crazy making mm-hmm. to get at the actual internal wounds that have brought about our our state of being, and it was so uh, genuine, and didn't rely on a certain Christianese to be perpetuated, uh, and and so uh, that was what intrigued me at the start. And so I kept taking a bunch of his classes and became a TA of his, and just wanted to soak in as much as possible of this way of being, rather than the 
you know, the bullet points or principles that he wanted someone to adopt to be, quote, you know, in the truth. And it turns out, I found out much later, he had been, had um, studied with Father Thomas Keating at, at Snowmass in Colorado and became an instructor, which I am now as well, a, a uh, commissioned presenter of centering prayer to start centering prayer groups, uh, which is just that simple practice of resting in in the presence of God in silence. So, uh, and it's interesting because I've got, I, I wrote that down, uh, the centering prayer. Uh, is that similar to, you know, the interesting thing is, um, so when I, I, I I am a Christian, uh, and uh, that's a that's a fluid term. But I am a Christian. But I decided that I wanted to read some Buddhist stuff, which uh, I find uh, very f- helpful and incredibly fascinating. And I love I love Buddhism. But one of the things I have been practicing is the the Zen practice of meditation, which is essentially just silence is centering prayer similar to that yes so the the dis- distinguishing terminology that father keating will make even though he is you know had um i, I believe uh studied with shusaki roshi in in uh who had a a, a zen center in in the southern california <clears throat> area mount baldy i believe and, and so he is very much part of interfaith dialogue, but he had a, a kind of a unique distinction he made between <clears throat> mindfulness practice and Zen as pure relinquishment of thoughts. It's, um, it, it's sort of, uh, you know, Zen from a certain perspective is just non-theistic. It doesn't make a claim one way or another about a, a divine right. figure. Yes. Whereas... He, you know, he's uh, as a Trappist monk uh, operating within a certain theological framework. Call, distinguished is his heartfulness practice of a kind of prayer of the heart, and rather than evacuating thoughts and purely sitting in silence, there is a the symbol of the sacred word that you choose when you recognize you're getting preoccupied with your thoughts is to welcome and invite the divine presence and consent to that in, in, in our inmost level being so it's there is a distinction of what uh, on a kind of uh, theological metaphysical basis of what happens on a practical level the actual practice of it um, one is a kind of encounter based and, and is that um real or imagined and what are the outcomes there is kind of a, an open question I have friends who uh, run centering prayer groups but also two or three times a year will go to Sashin for a week in a Zen center um, It's they are both quite clearly in the family of contemplative practices yeah very interesting so let's talk about uh, some of the some of the incredibly heretical things you just mentioned <laughs> So man, I know. Okay, good deal. So here's something interesting for me, man, and uh, and you'll I think you'll I think you'll grasp this based on your evangelical background, also. Um, 
So I, as I made my departure from organized religion and from the pastorate, I left all that stuff and um, it retained my faith, but left all that other stuff, uh, which was wonderful. And, um, <laughs> but so I started reading um, a lot of Buddhist stuff and some of the quotes and some of the ideas I found to be really precious. And so because because I want to share those things, right, I, I popped a few of those quotes on my Instagram. And as you can imagine, the direct messages, yeah, uh, so what, you're a Buddhist now, right? That That's the first thing. Um, because Christians don't believe that you can intermingle competing. And I know Buddhism is a religion is, that's a stretch for that word in some, some fashions. But... Anything that competes with Christianity on an evangelical level, typically you're not allowed to blend those. But yet you've mentioned that that people have blended paths on some level. Um, how, how does that... Well, let's talk a little bit about that, because I know historically that that has been the case. Um, and it still happens today. So can you can you touch on that just a bit? Sure, I think there there's um, kind of an individual and collective component there. Uh, one is uh, another heretic, uh, Father Richard Rohr. Yes, talks about the the you know the order, the disorder, and the reorder, which is that path you just described of an initial construct of. A, a belief system and a faith and then having that um, you know whittled away at by whatever the experiences were and then coming into a questioning place the, 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 the desert experience and then moving through that to the reorder out of the, the other side um, and that corresponds with a, 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 a theory of, of morality which is the pre-conventional, I'm out for myself. The conventional, I conform to the social rules. And the post-conventional, which is, it depends, and it's situational, and it's it's not always black and white. And, and, and that is a, an individual process of maturation. And um, I've thought of it in, in a variety of ways, but it, it similarly, I think in a kind of stage one, um, I'm, whether I participate in faith or have any kind of faith, I, it's sort of a, a selfish pursuit. I hope I don't go to hell, or I hope I get as many toys as possible before I die. Yep. It, whatever it is, it's an egocentric <laughs> pursuit. And there's this middle stage of recognizing I need to participate in something bigger than myself. Mm. and uh, give and learn how to be a better person and, uh, you, you know, learn and in, integrate a certain moral code consistently and, and, and live in a different way. And to me, that stage is, uh, you know, valid and um, necessary and goes, an evangelical conversion can be a powerful thing and maybe even necessary at a certain level of consciousness that, that there is growth happening there and and yet 
that is, you know, we need to move from elementary school to middle school. There, that's, that is maturation. But to call middle school is as, you know, as intelligent and as, as much training as you're ever going to need, and we've got it. We're the middle school. Um, is, it has its, its limitations, and those involve what I call the displaced ego. So it's no longer about defending your own individual ego from perceived threats and advancing its causes. It's about preserving and defending the, the group ego that I now identify with, with, with whatever label, whatever, um, you know, uh, however broadly or narrowly that's defined. And that is a, a, another stage on the journey. And that's what you're running into with the DMs and what we get in, you know, Facebook posts um, when the, the mystics are heretics and the, it's not too late before you die to turn back. And, you know, we understand we, we've, we've been there ourselves, uh, certainly Clint and I, where it's about defending an identity against perceived threats. And that is in a dualistic consciousness. And, yeah. and that is... Um, perpetuated by that exclusivist affiliation um, and it's it's part of a process of maturation now when you start to ha have your own experience develop an internal spiritual authority that can be a winnowing fork whether you're inside a given faith tradition or examining it from the outside the wisdom and love and loving kindness resonates like a kind of energy that is can be reciprocated and uh, you don't need to have that validated by an external authority time and time again and, and so um, there is a, a time you know to be a child there's a time to be an adolescent and there's a time to be an adult and you know, become what what a lot of the worship songs are about, hoping to become. Uh, yeah, yeah, which yeah. Is a, 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 you know, the, the, the uh, allowing to be in touch with that kind of inner divinity and divine spark and the the, the, the indwelling spirit. Yeah. So, interestingly enough, and I want to come back to that, but. Uh, in the in the past, particularly in the let's say the the, the Christian historic um, ideology, it, it feels like to me um, that a lot of this has been really kind of whitewashed. Uh, one of the things I notice, particularly like if we start at the very beginning, it does feel from a objective read that Jesus himself is kind of trying to reframe or redefine who God is in his culture. And uh, throughout history, you see Christian history, you seem to have these mystics that were basically, and I'm thinking like people like um, Origen or, or, or Pseudo-Dionysus, who I know was a little controversial, but there seems to be a lot of these characters that were mainstream and now they, they they don't even exist. So, 
Uh-huh. What what happened with some of that? I mean, for instance, that even some of the Gnostic Gospels, I know they weren't always viewed as garbage literature. So, uh-huh. what what happened to the variety? What happened to the permissiveness? You know, uh, like uh, what is it in the Jewish faith? Is it? Uh, I I don't know if it's called. Uh, Oh, I don't know. It, it's it's a way of you you have your own interpretation of the of the text, right? Um, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. The terms that escape me right now as well. Me as well, but, yeah. Uh, the interpretation, yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, we can point to a couple things historically. One, I would say, Constantine and the ascendancy of Christianity becoming a state religion and aligned with power. Um, and then, you know, the, 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 the adopting a certain necessity of, of hierarchy and creedal definition to define who's in and who's out. There's a, a specificity uh, doctrinally that has to be uh, become uh, crystallized and concretized. And, and then you fast forward about a, a thousand years and the Reformation is then making doctrinal distinctions and we, you know it creates a lot of division and conflict and, and uh, you know the warfare um, and violence and part of that is the the egoic dynamic that is saying uh, that identifies with that takes us into principles or labels and says I am that and I am not that over there and, and, and that dualistic consciousness eventually always results in some kind of conflict externalized. Um, but uh, it, it always has to do with um, the need to distinguish oneself and then it, the, the move of the mystic is the opposite. It, it kind of recognizes after a while that this self, this identity with its name, its, its selective mental history, its, its makeup, the society it exists in, is a conditioned thing. And that essential nature, the spirit within, transcends that. And then it sees the self in the other. And then you get things like, uh, you know, I tell you, you need to love your enemy. And, and that is kind of this Cohen bursting the dualistic consciousness. And, and you're, I think you're absolutely right that there is this separate kind of strand off to the side, a little stream running alongside this great river of history, um, of the history of the church and sort of Christianity, capital C, of this living spirit, um, and it's interesting, uh, Evelyn Underhill, in her kind of seminal work, Mysticism, talks about the eras of mystical flowering. As It's as if she identifies them historically. They all come at the tail end of these historical cultural flowering. And it's as if this, there's this, in history, this upsurge and shift in consciousness and the capstone of that at every inflection point is a a, uh, a mystical awareness. 
and and I think that flows in as well to what you mentioned earlier about the kind of universality. We still have identities, we have histories, we have families, we have our, you know, uh, the, the labels we identify with, but those are always in brackets once you've had this a kind of mystical breakthrough. Those aren't who you ultimately, fundamentally identify as. You recognize those as relative terms. And there's something beneath that that is more you than any of that other stuff. And it, uh, uh, what you also recognize, it's more everyone else too. Mm. And so that kind of takes the blinders off of the, the lenses and categories that you see people through and that we apply by default the evaluative framework that sees in terms of race, class, gender, um, you know, religion, and so on, that are these distinguishing markers that the ego is drawn toward. And once that ego is, begins to be dissolved, those are, are set in brackets. And so some of what you're talking about is, is exactly right in the sense that Christ himself is bringing a certain awareness within his context and speaking to that, subverting it, upending some of the assumptions about God, about religion, about community, about identity. And that every so often keeps coming up where you see those figures within their own contexts. We, we touch on, on our, our, our little course in Contemplative Light pseudo-Dionysius and um, you know up to St. Francis and and even some some sort of early modern mystics who and, and uh, it, it might be a good time too to just touch on that term yeah perfect that um, the, the mystic comes from the term mysterion and in the Catholic tradition you have this sense of the mysterium tremendum at Fascinans, this uh, presence beyond categories, language, concept, definition. There's a, a kind of framework for the negative way, that which is beyond definition. Oddly enough, it, it is preserved, even in as late as the Vatican II, there is a distinguishing, uh, or rather a distinction between verbal prayer or discursive prayer, imaginative prayer and contemplative prayer, a prayer of which is kind of the, the innermost kernel of, of intimate relationship to the divine and, and yet that term mysticism in the popular consciousness and certainly in Christian circles especially with on, on the less mature end of the spectrum when you're still trying to define who you are by what you reject and what you're not is is a marker of, of identity and so uh, in those circles you're you're looking for and you, labels to fill into the enemy slot in your brain and so uh, mysticism mystics it it sounds esoteric it doesn't sound like it's something that fits within a, a certainly a narrow tight framework that we can vet and validate and affirm within a hierarchical authoritarian patriarchal structure um, it, it, it sounds subversive and it is subversive 
uh, and, and, but it is associated with uh, Hermeticism, uh, the, the Egyptian tradition of Hermes Trismegistus. It's associated with paganism and is kind of lumped into a New Age bucket. Um, and so it's it's kind of easy to reject and to demonize. And so that's in part precisely why it's so difficult to find credible, uh, reliable, explicit uh, sources on the topic. Mm. Yeah, it really is. I, 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 you know, and that's been, I think, one of the one of the more frustrating things for me is coming from a position, you know, within Christianity, everything is spelled out. They have an answer for everything. And then, of course, you realize, especially like in the writings of Pseudo-Dionysus, which I think, uh, and a lot of the other uh, apophotic uh, fathers, um, I found to be really liberating, quite frankly. Uh, you find this, that the, the mystery is still intact, and the unknowing is still intact. But that's really, that's really... I don't know. It's it's almost completely the opposite of what Christianity is today. <clears throat> and so, did did you struggle with leaving certainty for mystery? <clears throat> wow, what a great question! Um, no question, because it, you know there's a. Um, by contrast, by way of contrast, there's a, 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 a girl, I guess she's probably older now, I used to follow a little more closely, you know, who, who wrote a humorous website at first called Stuff Christian Culture Likes, and then became a little more, you know, vociferously critical. And her journey was such that her conservative evangelical parents said, either you change your life and thus and so, or you're no longer our daughter. Mm. And so her wound and, and um, move away from was very clear. It was a clear break, and the wound was um, identifiable. In my case, my parents have tremendous stories of healing in their own right, and, and they're both ordained uh, Pentecostal pastors and are loving and supportive and I have to be far more um, carefully, subtly analytical of what are those things internally that are, are that don't feel right, and that I, I have to dis distinguish and, and pull out the threads. And so it's more of a, uh, a, a discipline than a clear rejection. It, I, in, uh, one way to think about it that ha is helpful to me is is a a transcendence rather than a rejection. It, uh, uh, Richard Rohr has this great term, transcend and include. Move to the next stage of maturity without having to demonize and reject that which you come out of. You can still see and preserve the good that's there. And, and that's that's been, been hugely helpful to me as well. Yeah. You know... Um I, I do find the whole thing. Now, you talked about being inclusive, for instance. Um, I do find the whole thing a bit uh, of a challenge because what I have discovered in my 
exploration. So my exploration began with the obviously as many you know what what are my offenses? What are the things that I don't like? And then it moved on from so that would be the deconstruction. You know, then it moved on to what what else is out there? What are the other possibilities? And then um, I became friends with. Um, Buddhists. I became friends with pagans. I became friends with you know all kinds of wonderful people who had very different ideas, very different practices. But I found some of those, uh, the observation of seasons, the some of the deep inner exploration, uh, for instance, of uh, that's found in a lot of earth-based uh, belief systems, and. So much of that is absent, right? We just want to, like you mentioned before, I'm a new creation. I don't want to think about anything else. Uh, what are your feelings, I guess? You, you talk about inclusivity. Um, what are the ideas of integrating practices that aren't necessarily, um, I guess, birthed from your faith system? What are your thoughts on that? I, I think um, one of the key words that you just said was people. You talked about engagement and encounter and relationship. Now, if you are within a closed system and what you are concerned with is a belief system, not necessarily in the full meaning of the word a faith if you are kind of um, your entire framework is a belief system that is has to be you know distinguished from other belief systems then what you encounter really when you uh, either if you're writing about or even talking to engaging with a Buddhist or a, a Wiccan or a Hindu or a, a, a spiritual but not religious you know undefined is a category it's an abstraction there is a kind of an overlay that is part partly your own construct when you are engaging in that level and so you are there is no reciprocity um it's a, a defensive posture a an aggressive posture or at best a kind of neutral acceptance but not an exchange because the 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 truth that you have adopted is prepackaged and complete, uh, and and you might not be living it out perfectly, but you need to get to an authority figure, go back to the Bible, and and get right or get aligned. Mm-hmm. But the the, mm-hmm. the source and the definitions are all there already, and on another component of this is that those have become kind of wedded to a. Um, a kind of middle class suburban oftentimes lifestyle as the ideal template in America mm-hmm. and so it it's tough to even pull that apart what is the Christianity and what is the lifestyle that I that we've kind of adopted by default that has become the ideal that other people need to if they were saved then they would start you know looking nicer and taking care of their lawns and and, and getting their life right, um, but not over overly so. So they'd stay in a kind of middle class pocket and and attend a, a suburban megachurch or whatever it is would be the 
the, the ideal outcome. There's a all of that is is uh, kind of uh, all one bundle, and some of what you're talking about is once some of that bubble is burst and you are open. That was the internal shift. It sounds like to me with you that took place. You were the, that preceded the encounter engagement the receptivity to experience some of what they were talking about but that's that's the dynamic that's why we focus so much on language surrounding practice and experience and focus less on defining um you know doctrinal formulations and um Distinguishing and trying even to argue from a theological perspective, though we do that to a, to an extent, why people need to get on board with this. Usually, it's it's some experience of the wound or some breakthrough, even a, a, a dark night of the soul that guides them to this kind of place. Uh, it's not going to be argued into existence. That it, that's the, maybe the best thing to to address is abstraction. Is a, a, all of this mental layer, and that those are the labels we apply to others, the labels we apply to ourselves, and that is uh, prevents connection, prevents growth, prevents maturation. A lot of the time, it's getting stuck at that mental layer, and so when we stay, even um, thinking of of other people in those terms, uh, rather than the traditions they come out of. You are a Buddhist. That's why I was I'm careful to say at the start, you know, Clinton, I come out of a Christian tradition. Um, it, it, it becomes a, uh, a challenge to negotiate those definitions and boundaries, which aren't at the experiential level. Those are those categories and labels and, and definitions we sort of superimpose upon that primary mode of of experience yeah it's really honestly man that is hard for I think the western mindset to to grapple with you know if you study a lot of uh, early Christianity obviously I'm not not saying this for you but for the listeners but you you find all kinds of crazy uh, you know people that practice uh, various forms of um, We'll call it spell spell work or spell casting, uh, divination. Um, you know, you find a lot of use of tarot cards in in a particular sect of Christianity, and then you've got people like the Rosicrucians and other groups that you know maybe we would question if they were <laughs> true Christians. As much as I hate to say that, but there seems to be a ton of diversity uh, within that. Uh, we believe in Jesus as Lord idea and then somewhere along the line we begin to slough those off and who were the real Christians and who weren't uh, but w- would you would you agree that uh, prior to say let's say let's say a Constantine event that the term Christianity was pretty that was a very loose definition was it not yeah, I wonder, even even that, that term itself, um, early on, obviously the church early on were just the practitioners of the way. Yeah. So even that that bundle of Christendom and Christianity as a, a, a container and a unit, um, 
the way it, it, it shatters a lot of the in-out, in-group, out-group, um, us versus them dualism if you are practicing a way of inner cultivation of, of awareness, of love, of presence, of engagement, of transformation. Um, it is, is a much different thing than um, becoming a defender of this this thing, this category called Christianity. So, I, I, and I, you know, there's so many strands to what you're, what you, even the, the couple of things you just invoked at different historical time periods, and, and so much context surrounding that. I think, in the main, your point is well taken. There is that wider diversity of accepted practice that gradually got narrowed down and narrowed down to a very narrow, confined set of acceptance. And and you've mentioned this a bit before, but let's just to to bring it back around. Why did that happen? In part, we sit now, are, are, we are the children of the Enlightenment and modernity. And, you know, this, um, this worldview that is a Cartesian, Newtonian, and very much mind-centered in the West. And so um, part of what's happening now, I think what's happening with you, what's happening in some cases with contemplative practice broadly in a lot of different traditions, because, you know, Christians aren't the only one experiencing this dynamic. Um, other traditions have their kind of purists and hardliners and fundamentalists. Sure. And then, you know, on, on, in a way, both sides, the Abrahamic faiths with... Um, with Islam and the Sufis experience the same kind of um, you know suspicion and, and potential persecution I think within their tradition yeah uh, and, and the uh, Zen is a kind of distilled essence uh, within a Buddhist tradition and there are there is such a thing I, I'm told as immature Buddhists you know who also can can turn violent if their precepts are contradicted um, and so as, as kind of odd as that sounds for the little bit of, of what bleeds through for, for most of us Westerners um, and so the the esoteric can't be controlled by nature of its openness it is open to lack of definition lack of structure um, which opens it to uh, unknown, ambiguous influences, definitions, doctrines, and so um, uh, from a, a cynical perspective, that that is does not it, it can't be controlled. It can't be contained and um, you know brought to heel in a sense within a, an organized hierarchical framework, and so from a, an organizational perspective, what do you do with that? Um, it, 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 it's, it's a free radical. And, and organizations, especially as we've developed, from that Cartesian-Newtonian worldview to the, the, the company, the church, the, the corporation, the kind of, and sometimes those two look very similar. 
the church and the corporation. Oh man, um, <laughs> very. That, that this it it's a piece that doesn't fit. It's amorphous. It's it's undefined and fuzzy at the edges, and so it, it's tough to make smart goals around you know <clears throat> mysticism. Yeah, because it's such a it has seasons it has um, it is it, there's an aspect of grace to it there's pain there's acknowledging woundedness and that moves at different paces for different people you can't track it on a chart um, and so it, it, I, I think it's it's kind of natural too that that be within a, a hierarchical system or within a, a mind, maybe a, a type one on the old Enneagram that thinks in very rigid terms, um, for example, that's it's a suspicious thing. Yeah. Yeah, so you can't, anything that's self-empowering, uh, whether it is, you know, magic, vis-a-vis uh, uh, spellcasting or whatever you would call that, uh, to uh, St. Francis or... Uh, Pseudo Dionysus, or any of these, even Martin Luther, but they weren't successful with him. But any of those things that are self empowering really have to be either muted or gotten rid of if you're going to retain power and hierarchy. I think that's kind of what you're saying. Uh, and uh, having given this quite a bit of thought and paid close attention to the different types of language that people use in different contexts in the church and out of the church, I think the child and the adolescent are in, in desperate need of and seek out father figures and authority figures. And if you are at an adolescent stage spiritually, you are dependent upon and need a framework that has clear, defined authority. And um, outside of this, 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 the apophatic way, mm. the the mystical way, uh, and um, let's maybe it, it should we should include in the discussion. There is a monastic tradition that that some of this has been going on in. You know, with varying degrees, sometimes they are, are also rigid and, and hierarchical, quite obviously. Mm-hmm. But there is a, a, a framework within which some of this, the apophatic way, has been preserved over the centuries. Or, you know, all these these books on my shelf would never have been written if those people hadn't preserved it. Um, and I wouldn't have access to those 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 texts and practices either. And so there is a rich monastic tradition that is mm-hmm. kind of this parallel strand uh, within the Christian tradition that, that has had that. Um, and it there is it's it is an uneasy relationship for sure yeah all right so i i only have three questions left for you and then, then i'm gonna let you go so let's talk about a couple of things um one of the things that i feel like i've i've heard from a variety of of spiritual teachers that weren't that weren't necessarily christ-centered but i think i'm also hearing it in you as well um, how, how big a role and I'm going to use a word that you don't typically hear within Christianity but how big a role does 
maybe in trusting your own intuition or trusting your own leading from the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to use there, how important is that in this journey? Um, I, 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 I want to stop short of saying it's the most important thing because something else might occur to me, but it's it's way up there. Yeah. Um, it, there is... I have, have certainly... It seems to be a consistent component of almost all people with spiritual maturity, people open to this contemplative, mystical tradition, the, the, the Christian mystics, and so on. They have a very keen sense of intuition, of um, being able to, whether it's empaths or sensitives, whatever term you want to apply, they have a very, they're sensitive to the presence and, and energy within another, and even there I hesitate to use the word energy because it can easily be dismissed as another foofy sort of new ageism. Yeah, but, yeah but I love I it. I think from a, from a scientific perspective at the same time, it, it's all energy. The, you know, the, the body, the, this desk, it's all a, a concentration of energies vibrating at a different, uh, you know, frequency um, that are, are, are make up the, the phenomenal and perceivable world. And so uh, absolutely the, the cultivation, and I think what a lot of what you're describing, at some point the needle moves from primary reliance on external authority to some degree of primary reliance upon that internal intuitive capacity um, that, that is not on a, a certain pre-programmed process of whatever the church calendar is that year of when the or even at, on a micro level in a given service of when the, the breakthrough moment is supposed to come with the slow song or whatever it is um, that, that there is a different alignment, a different season that is, and we are at some point of, of development. That's perfectly okay. Mm -hmm. I can participate at this level and, and when need to, and I can remove, and all of that is a, a taking internal stock and taking radical responsibility for your internal life. And I, I, I think a, a lot of the suspicion surrounding mysticism from a conventional perspective is uh, it's rebellious and you don't want to submit to authority. You just want to do your own thing. When instead, it is flying. You know, it's taking the training wheels off. It's, it's, there's the, the openness and freedom to take radical responsibility for your internal state. Yeah, you know... Um I know, you know, for instance, I mean, you, there's a number of Bible verses that would go along with that. And I'm thinking things like, you know, you have, you don't, you have no, you don't have a need for a teacher. You have the Holy Spirit that will lead and guide you and, and those things. But also I noticed for, for instance, within me, there was ever since I was a child, there's been this internal, and I know it sounds foofy and new agey, but there's been this internal knowing that on some level I have some type of connection literally uh, whether it's energetic or spiritual i don't i don't know and i don't want to give it that kind of definition but i have some kind of 
uh, connection with trees and plants and and nature. And then, you know, you, you see someone like Fr- St. Francis, who's, you know, uh, brother, son, sister, moon, you know, he, he sort of brings that to the surface. And so I think that a lot of times we deny those internal leadings because we're afraid of um, the retribution of God. And this is kind of where I'm leading. This is, this is my second to the last question, which is how do you explore while you have the fear of, of retribution and the big one, hell, hanging in the in the background, taunting, essentially. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I think some of those threads started to come apart. I think for me, uh, there was, and uh, I, I wrote papers in college on the doctrine of hell and then in seminary on, on the afterlife in general and um, on uh, I wanted to instead of letting that linger as a, a fear just kind of explore the range of teachings and ideas on the topic um, and I think a, an appetite for for exploration and um really has has been at the heart of, of my shift um, I've heard and paying attention to some of the subtle differences and, and contradictions maybe within you know a lot of I, I man I've heard all kinds of pastors and they all you know some of them would claim to have a very um, uh, clear kind of teaching on well you know God is omniscient and all powerful but the, the devil, so he's he's not all powerful. He can't be everywhere at once, but he's really really fast, and he can move from place to place uh, at a certain speed. And 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 I started getting into wait a second, you know, it's questioning uh, how does he know that he seems like he's kind of in, has a certain degree of poetic license he's taking by some of the stuff he's saying and that could be contradicted by another pastor who said something else and so um, I, a couple of things one honestly a huge thing that helped was in being an English major and reading a ton and developing an eye for a kind of metaphorical intelligence mm. and um, and being able to see through a surface image in a text and I think part of the the trajectory of language and thought has been toward the literal uh, you know over the centuries since the alphabet there's a a, a kind of great book on that um, that I'm going to have to look up by uh, I'll, I'll think of the, the, the book before we leave but it, it kind of traces in a sense the de-evolution of, of thought and language toward this kind of literal place we are now oftentimes and the ability to kind of penetrate through literal surfaces through the, the repeated act of having to read from ancient myths to the romantic poets to, to Shakespeare and kind of becoming conversant in the language of, of, of myth and symbol and the, the resonant meanings and, and kind of penetrating through the surface of the text rather than just sticking to the, the surface literal space um, yeah 
Yeah, it's a tough one. I, I, uh, and I think it's because, like you say, we we live in a. First of all, our our subconscious has been, especially here in the West, our subconscious has been inundated with this fear, and and fears are one of the harder things for our mind to let go of. And so, um, I know when I discovered the idea of meta narratives, for instance, you know, uh, understanding that you can't take the Bible in bits and pieces. Uh, yeah, there's a whole lot of things that start to fall apart. <laughs> So here's an interesting final idea. Let's talk about the path of mysticism. I know you guys do a lot of work with that. How does someone start to walk that path in an in a, a, a you know a spiritual way, but also in an intellectual way? It's a heavy book. 
There's a lot there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. So now yeah. on the Contemplative Light uh, website, though, there's you have several things available as well. Isn't that true? Yes, for sure. Um, and uh, and even maybe before you know uh, before Contemplative Light, I, I might the the kind of most you know uh, um, introductory toehold for this is a guy named Carl McCollman. His books, he's almost kind of the, you know, the Christian mysticism for for dummies um, kind of guidebooks that he writes, just kind of step-by-step, introductory, basic overview. Um, and we tend to attract maybe just more intermediate, let's say, people who have already maybe been on the path for a while or, like yourself, have gone through that deconstruction and, importantly, reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 honestly, the the book I wrote was precisely at that inflection point. Okay, I had a certain formulation of faith that was deconstructed, and I've been in this desert a while. What are some threads I can hold on to to start that process of reconstruction? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that is kind of. Um, Coterminous with a healing process. It's not just a mental revision and trying to access a a, a, a Western intellectually honest um, formulation of faith. But one thing that you pointed out in your your own shift along those lines is an openness. So um, we try as much as possible to be intellectually honest, cer- certainly, and kind of transparent. Of, of what we do and don't get into um, and at the same time shift the focus away from uh, doctrinal articulation and defense and apologetics which is at that middle layer of, of spiritual uh, maturity of defining uh, and, and instead moving to this kind of mystical contemplative space of ongoing relinquishment and inner transformation which at some point you realize man the radical invitation here is to bring that to bear moment to moment that is the kind of how radical the discipline is um, rather than talk about my conversion experience wherever that happened at, at 15 at youth camp or at 26 when I was uh, strung out on drugs um, to this, which are obviously legitimate experiences, but at some point after that dam breaks, and even a, a second, uh, I, I, I kind of liken what you talked about that movement into the contemplative space. There's a baptism of water, of becoming kind of part of the uh, uh, a, a faith community, and there's a baptism of fire, of you know, shifting toward that inner uh, intuitive capacity and kind of growing into maturity and adulthood and and that is that space that requires openness mm. and uh, uh, attentiveness to those subtle internal shifts but also open to that presence in others so that experiential level is really what we're what our focus is now uh yeah, it's interesting you mentioned apologetics, and I don't want to get on a big thing here, but I, I can tell you that there was a point 
and you know forgive the listeners who are into apologetics but there 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 is a point where i thought boy apologetics are really just so dumb you know uh, <laughs> i mean it, it just is such a rudimentary practice of reaffirming that what you believe is real uh but i don't get, i won't get on that so so let's talk about um the book uh dante's road um i know uh i fell into and i think it came through a guy named richard smoley i don't know if you're familiar with him he's another author but um he, he talked a little bit about dante's um work and how he viewed those as almost um initiations to different levels of of the process uh is, is that kind of what the book is referring to in 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 part uh, i i was looking for a way to communicate some of uh, of this process i've been on myself and even that you talked about in, in descriptive terms of that you know, initial faith, um, deconstruction, reconstruction, uh, and yet uh, kind of bring that home in a very personal way, and but have a kind of bundle that we could we could have for that journey and a, and a metaphorical. Let's go through a hero's journey, and it's not about me, the author, talking about my experience and make of it what you will. But um, at, at seminary, of the hundreds of books I read, the one that was most profound was this little arts group I was a part of and we went through this book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron together and it's this it's explicitly about getting unstuck creatively and kind of explicitly cultivate some of those attentive intuitive capacities that manifest in creativity and and it was some of the more uh, genuine authentic intimate transformative conversations I had in seminary were because of this this book about kind of reclaiming your you know creativity and I, I was just trying to assess what was it about that book that was so transformational and it was it was an experience it was an invitation to um, reflections in your own life and and so I wanted to have the, the most readily available framework that I could think for um, taking that idea and applying it to spiritual formation was this path of, of Dante's divine comedy which begins with waking up and this recognition that wait a second I'm lost I don't know where I am how do I get out of here where, where am I supposed to be I'm trying to get up in his case Mount Joy at the start he just wants to climb up Mount Joy and his way is blocked by greed and avarice and, and addiction um, and vice and and trying to come to terms with that in an authentic individual way uh, in my own life and um, facing I get into it much more in the book but uh, my own sexual addiction and so I'm, I'm kind of uh, very transparent and, and explicit on the journey starting of recognizing that articulating it bringing it to light and I I uh, had brought that to spiritual directors, to pastors, to, to, to different groups, and had it prayed over over here. Um, and where the movement took place was in in a twelve step group. And and part of the eleventh step, if people don't know, is some kind of contemplative practice of 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 prayer. And so that is the beginning of I'm I'm lost, 
and the way I've been doing it is not working anymore, and I'm I'm stuck. And and this is you know post Christian conversion and post Christian lifestyle. Now what? If the answer to everything is become a Christian, uh, so talking about the and now even worse, being in that state of, of deconstruction. And so it was this this apt metaphor as I looked back on the journey that I saw others around me in that season of life. It just seems to me people in their late 30s they're un- and early 40s, there's this little window where their unaddressed junk starts coming up. And there's divorce and people get kicked out and people are cheating and, and addictions are, are starting to wreak havoc on you know, the, maybe their children. There's this, this, this hot spot season of life. And I just saw so many uh, friends and relatives just struggling with dryness, spirit, depression, um, you know, broken relationships starting to manifest. And I, I wanted to articulate some of here are sources of wisdom and practices that can help bring about transformation in those very real situations uh, of pain and there's a deeper wound that has to be acknowledged and transformed and so this process of first we got to enter our own personal hell so the first section and the inferno is hell and in my book it's um you know what is your hell why why do you get stuck there? What are your negative patterns? What are your destructive tendencies? And how can you face that shadow and work through it? And then let's move into, in Dante's Divine Comedy, it's the purgatory section. And it, instead, now let's find healthy habits. What is healthy rest? What is healthy worship? What is healthy community? What's healthy creativity? And so a, the, a reconstruction process, and then for, for in Dante's Divine Comedy, the final section is the uh, Paradiso, where he is getting a theological education in grace and love and moving up through the, the, the ten divine circles. And eventually, the highest level of, of souls that he meets are the mystics. And one of the mystics takes over from grace and educates him in love and guides him into the the heavenly sphere which eventually for this kind of who started that sort of prideful poet is beyond his capacity for language and concept to articulate the beauty of the trinity and the divine mystery and that's where i get into more of these these contemplative practices that can take the journey beyond what you could ever even articulate as a goal of achieving um, as the, and so I get into in both Christian mystics in that final section and you know touching on how this wisdom is coming from from other some teachers in other traditions as well but the the confluence is there and the, 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 the uh, similar experience Wow that sounds amazing man uh, so I'm very intrigued by that. I I saw I think the book on the um, the Mark Thomas uh, Shaw dot com, but I would assume. Well, I guess I'll let you say. Well, where are some other places to get a hold of that? 
I mean, it's 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 out by Anamkara Books. It's on Amazon. It's going to be the easiest place. I suspect by now it came out back in March. I suspect there are some some uh, used copies for sale as well. Uh, you know, for the budget conscious consumer out there. Um, <laughs> and really, you know what? My my litmus test. I told that there's a guy named Dean Nelson who's an author in his own right. He runs um, uh, all kinds of stuff down at Point Loma Nazarene University. Um, he's the uh, an, a name sort of in the publishing world because he does runs this Authors by the Sea program and, and I just so through connections met with him to kind of run the idea by him at first is this worth writing about and, and he was so kind of gung-ho about it my own internal litmus test for even starting the process was would I write this if my name wasn't on it if I had to write it as anonymous and it was sort of a resounding yes you know this is an energy that, uh, and an encounter that I I really genuinely think people at a certain inflection point of their journey will um, be helped by. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, man, I want to uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's just an extremely interesting subject, it, and uh, I, I I would love to. Uh, and I'm going to corner corner you a bit here, but I, I would love to have you back on to talk some more about it because it's just such a deep subject. So maybe we can make that happen, huh? Oh, absolutely, be my pleasure. And and before I forget, the the book I couldn't remember earlier is called The Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram, where he gets into some of that the trajectory of how thought and language have, have kind of. Uh, changed over time and, and it's a more philosophical bent certainly I wanted to keep my book a little more accessible maybe than yeah I'm, uh, I'm definitely uh, interested in your book man I'm gonna I'm gonna grab that and and um, maybe next time we'll talk about some of the some of the jewels in there but it sounds fascinating the whole the whole Dante's thing is uh, once you kind of learn I guess, or figure out more what it's about, it becomes almost like a whole other world. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. The the medieval imagination that kind of filters. um, And the the spiritual formation aspect of it, um, it, which is both familiar and the way he treats it, it's kind of exotic and unfamiliar, and, and there's so much to learn there. Yeah, it's very it's very cool. And uh, by the way, man, the artwork on your book is fabulous as well. Oh, thank you, man. It, it, man, I mean, it might be a whole podcast just talking about the the, the publication process there. But um, uh, man, I, I couldn't be more um, pleased with with your your the spirit with which you you're engaging in your work and. Um, I uh, would absolutely be delighted to be back on when, when we get a chance. Well, I appreciate that, man. And, and uh, yeah, this has been really great. Now, if you would hang out for just a second, I'm going to close this out and uh, and talk to you for a few moments afterwards. So if you don't mind, just hang out for one moment, and I'll close this out and, uh, and come back to you. Okay? You got it. You got it, man. Okay, guys, uh, that is uh, Mark Thomas Shaw. I'm going to tell you more about him um, after the music, um, kind of how to reach him and where he's located online. So hang out, and I'll connect with you after the music.
Okay, guys, thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate you hanging out with me today. I hope that you really, you know, enjoyed the conversation. One of the things that I find incredibly interesting about this journey is all of the different branches, the veins, um, I guess offshoots of this thing that you and I call Christianity. It's an incredibly contemplative, expansive, um, diverse path that you and I are on. Sadly for so many of us, myself included, um, our initial experience with Jesus has been, um, well, it's been very, I guess, hmm, protected maybe, right? Sheltered is probably the best word. And so many of the things I think that God really had intended for us, uh, we've been deprived of through the venue of what we might call evangelical Christianity. This kind of experience that doesn't allow for individuality, that doesn't allow for expanse, expansion, growth, even on some levels experimentation um, or individuality. I may have mentioned that already, but I think that for so many of us, the availability of what God intended to be ours has been a little bit stolen from us through this um, perhaps false presentation of who it is that God is and the many ways that he wants to interact with our own lives and the many ways that he wants us to experience the experience of being a human being. And I think for a lot of us, we've been very sheltered in that. We haven't enjoyed, let's say, the energy of a full moon. We haven't enjoyed the energy of nature as it surrounds us. We haven't enjoyed the possibility of contemplation, you know, of a spiritual reading even of the scriptures. We haven't enjoyed the possibility of exploring other, even Christian writings that perhaps weren't canonized, but could still offer us wisdom and insight into who it is exactly that God is, that Christ is. You heard us during the conversation talk about individuals like Pseudo-Dionysus and Probably so many of you, unless you're an avid listener to this podcast, you've never heard of the writer Pseudo-Dionysus or the Apophotic Fathers or yet so many of those individuals whose uh, um, origin even, whose thoughts were, I think, very different, expansive, diverse than perhaps the traditional idea that you and I have been presented with or even surrounded by today. But I can tell you that some of those writings, especially for me, the writings of Pseudo-Dionysus, they're so... um, He operates on the level of God being a mystery and the unknown being very much a part of whom God is. And I just think that so much of what he had to say is so valuable and it gives room 
for I don't know some of the even the disappointments that we experience in our faith um pseudo Dionysus and his writings it gives room for that disappointment room for that mystery and by and large it's been whitewashed by the evangelical church most of us don't even know who um, that writer or that author or the apophatic and so many of the apophatic writers and authors uh, who they were so uh, by the way uh, for those of you who are listening apophatic and apophatic uh, are two different ways of pronouncing that. And the only reason I say that is because uh, so many uh, podcasts ago, I mentioned those writers and uh, got a real nasty email <laughs> that I wasn't pronouncing it right. So for those of you that are hardcore into pronunciation, by the way, the pronunciation of some of those words is debated. But nonetheless, just want to throw that out there. Um I think so many of us have been shielded from those uh, writers. We've been shielded from the things that they had to offer, the things that they had to say. And I think in many ways, some of those writings and some of those ideas, some of those philosophies, some of those views of God, they're incredibly valuable. And they're a wonderful enhancement to our experience with the divine, to our thoughts on the divine, into our relationship with the divine. So anyway, man, thanks so much for hanging out with me. Again, just to reiterate, if you'd like to know more about Mark, by the way, he's got this incredible book out about uh, Dante's journey that I just think sounds fascinating. Um, if you want to dive in or you want to connect with Mark, the best way to do that is, again, through the website, I think contemplativelight.com or Mark, uh, M-A-R-C, MarkThomasShaw.com. Those are really the best ways to connect. And uh, what a great guy. What a great spirit. What a great heart. And I want to encourage you to reach out and make that connection. Grab a hold of the book. I think it sounds fascinating. Um, go listen to some of the podcasts. It will expand you. It will mature you. And uh, yeah, make that connection. All right, guys. Th again, dude, thanks for hanging out with me. I deeply appreciate and love you being a part of this podcast. Blessings done. Blessings <laughs> done.